Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. And I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No sorry. So, we are unfortunately going to start off with a couple of obituaries here. First one here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. Judith Ann Schwartzbaum, April 10, 1945 to November 2nd, 2023. Author unknown. An epidemiologist whose groundbreaking research focused on the relationship between the immune system and the development of glioma. Glioma, a form of brain cancer, Judith Schwartzbaum was as dedicated to and passionate about left-wing feminist politics for many friends who spanned generations and ballet, which she practiced for over 40 years, as she was to her research and teaching. Born in Alameda, California in 1945 and raised in Los Angeles, she earned multiple degrees in history before shifting to epidemiology, and in 1991, began a long, distinguished career at The Ohio State University's College of Public Health, from which she retired in 2022. Predeceased by her mother, Bess Levy Schwartzbaum, who died early in her childhood, her stepmother, Mary Richards, and her father, Harry Schwartzbaum, she is survived by her brother, Eric Schwartzbaum, sister-in-law, Catherine Jackson Schwartzbaum, and their children, Ethan and Daniel. Her cousins, Jean Mele, Michael and Sarah Shapiro, and Maida Mechanic, and countless friends from every period of her life, many of whom she spoke to at least weekly for 50 or 60 years. In Columbus, where she lived for 32 years, the last decade of them with Lucy, the rescue dog she adored, she had an extraordinarily wide and disparate group of friends, including young activists who considered her their adoptive lefty Jewish grandmother, and a tight community of fellow dancers at the Flux Flow Dance Center, where she danced six days a week. Although she had struggled with a seizure disorder since 2021, her death was sudden and unexpected. Brilliant, glamorous, hilarious, imperious, unfailingly generous, ferociously loyal, a teller of jokes both excellent and awful, a determined provocateur, a kind of loving friend, she will be deeply missed by the many, many people of whose lives she was a part. That was Judith Ann Schwartzbaum, April 10, 1945 to November 2nd, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. This next one is from the obituary section of the Los Angeles uh, Times for Sunday, November 19, 2023. David A. Levy, October 23, 1932 to November 15, 2023, author unknown. David A. Levy passed away on November 15, 2023 at the age of 91 after battling a lengthy illness, according to his son, John Levy. David A. Levy was born on October 25, 1932 in Carrollton, Missouri, and moved to California with his family when he was 11. Levy graduated from Long Beach Poly High School only to return to lead its football team on two CIF championships in three years. He studied at Long Beach State City College, Long Beach City College for two years and transferred to UCLA, where he not only played in the Rose Bowl, 
but also earned a Master's of Physical Education in 1954. Levy began his collegiate coaching career at USC in 1960 as an assistant coach under John McKay and for the next 16 years was involved in four national championships. His oldest son, John, played USC football during his tenure, and his younger son, Robert, graduated from the university. Levy remained at USC as an athletic assistant director, 1976-79, and was inducted into the 11th class of USC's Athletic Hall of Fame in 2015. In 1980, he joined the NFL's head coach, Don Coriel, of the San Diego Chargers, and held multiple positions, including offensive coordinator, reaching the AFC Championship twice. In 1989, Levy was hired by the Detroit Lions under head coach Wayne Fontes, where he once again held multiple positions, including assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator. The Lions appeared in one NFC Championship. Over the course of Levy's decades-long career, he coached several outstanding players, including the legendary Barry Sanders, Charlie Joyner, and Dan Fouts. Following his tenure with the NFL, he was invited to join the coaching staff of NFL Europe, the Canadian League, and the XFL. But even retirement at the age of 82 didn't dampen his passion. That first year of retirement, he remarked, was the most boring year of my life. That is, until shortly after, when he signed up to coach and mentor players from Harvard-Westlake and Fairfax High Schools. Esteemed by the football community for his deep knowledge of the game, he was also highly respected for his innovative and supportive coaching style, a mild-mannered teaching approach, unlike his more gruff but good friend, uh, Marv Gao. Up until his passing, he frequently received phone calls from the up-and-coming coaches he'd mentored, uh, asking for his advice. He enthusiastically obliged each and every one. Although Levy's greatest passion was football, he also loved his wife and family and looked forward to chatting with his with acquaintances over his regular morning coffee and sweet roll at Los Angeles's Fairfax Farmers Market. In 1954, he married Marilis Bray, and they had two sons, John W. Levy and Robert C. Bray. He later married Barry Levin of Beverly Hills on Christmas Day in 1978. He is survived by his wife, Barry, his Aunt Clara Lowry of Long Beach and children, John W. Levy of Reno, Nevada, Robert C. Bray of Las Vegas, Nevada, Ariel Levin and Karen Searley of Los Angeles, and Laurie Levin of Pacific Palisades. A donation at David Levy's memory may be made to UCLA's athletic program by either sending a check to the UCLA Foundation at P.O. Box 24044 Los Angeles 90024 or directly online to the uh, Woodham Athletic Fund Dot com. A celebration of his life will take place on the UCLA campus at the next David Geffen School of Medicine ceremony of thanks honoring donated body program donors. That was David A. Levy, October 23, 1932 to November 15, 2023, uh, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 19, 2023. We have two more here. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 18, 2023. Uh, Glory Lee Gersh, author unknown. Gloria Gersh, known affectionately to some of her friends as Glow, passed away in Rancho Mirage, California on October 28, 
due to complications from heart surgery. Born in Kansas City, Missouri to Jack and Margaret Gersh on May 1, 1956, Gloria grew up in neighboring Prairie Village and graduated from Shawnee Mission East in 1974. She attended Kansas University and then returned to Kansas City, where she earned a degree from Avila University. She taught in various settings in the Kansas City area before moving. she moved west to Los Angeles in 1988. She worked in teaching and sales positions and then began working as an accounting manager in a liquor distribution company. When that company went out of business, a few uh, out of business, she decided to dedicate a few years to try and pursue her dream opportunity of becoming a golf professional. She was awarded entry into the LPGA in 1996 and spent several years working as a teaching professional. Unfortunately, a series of back surgeries forced her to retire from that position in the early 2000s. In 1990, she met Vicki Harrison, and they spent the next 33 years together, marrying in 2008. They enjoyed traveling, especially cruises, and visited many countries in Europe and South America. The two of them moved to the Palm Springs area when Vicky retired. They lived for several years in PGA West in La Quinta before moving to Sun City Palm Desert in 2017. Gloria was a great athlete and enjoyed playing many sports in addition to golf until the back surgeries made that difficult. She tried her hand at pickleball and was hoping for a possible return to golf. She still loved watching sports on television loved football Sundays in the fall. She especially enjoyed watching her beloved hometown team, the Kansas City Chiefs. She loved nature and animals, and many of her favorite shows were on Animal Planet and the Discovery Channel. She was also fascinated by programs on space, science, air travel, and World War II. She was politically passionate and a real news junkie. She also enjoyed reading, especially nonfiction books relating to current events, as well as historical nonfiction. She enjoyed gambling, especially sports betting, and could be found at one of the local casinos with some regularity. In addition, she enjoyed Sudoku puzzles and could spend hours working the numbers. Gloria was a good friend and a loving wife and will be missed by many. She is survived by her brother Myron, Susan, his, her sister Arlene Rubenstein, John, as well as several nieces and nephews and her loving spouse, Vicky. That was Gloria Lee Gersh, author unknown. And this last one is Barbara A. Guttenberg, author, un author unknown. Barbara A. Guttenberg, or Guttenberg, born Barbara A. Franklin, passed away on November 9, 2023, in Pasadena, California. She was born on September 16, 1931, in Kansas City, Missouri. Barbara was a talented and experienced fashion designer and manufacturer for over 50 years. She also dedicated over 30 years of her life as a respected instructor at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Barbara's educational journey included attending El Monte Union High School in El Monte, California for her high school education. She further pursued her passion for art and design at the Chouinard Art Institute in Los Angeles, California. Outside of her successful career, Barbara was a lover of life and enjoyed various hobbies. As a longtime resident of Pasadena, California, she cherished world travel, the theater, and spending time with her friends. Barbara survived by her brother Donald E. Franklin, along with many nieces and nephews. She was also survived by the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren from her late husband's previous marriage.
Barbara was predeceased in death by her beloved husband, Dr. Arthur William Gutenberg, as well as her father, William I. Franklin, her mother, Martha H. Franklin, and her brother, Lowell W. Franklin. In memory of Barbara A. Gutenberg, contributions can be made to the Ben Gutenberg Memorial Fund through the following link, Charitable Information, www.racf.org slash fund slash Ben Gutenberg dash memorial dash fund. Barbara will be missed by her family, friends, and all those whose lives she touched throughout her remarkable journey as a fashion designer, instructor, and lover of life. That was Barbara A. Gutenberg, author unknown, both of them from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, November 18, 2023. All right, everyone, and now we are going to this article we just got with results of the uh, Israel Exchange for Prisoners, Israel-Palestinian Exchange of Prisoners and Hostages. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 25th, 2023, War Pauses, but chasm remains. As hostage prisoner swaps occur amid truce, Israel vows to press on. By Nabi Bulos, Tracy Wilkinson, and Laura King. Jerusalem. Tearful family reunions, aid trucks rumbling into devastated Gaza Strip, the roar of bombardment abruptly going silent, Friday's pause in hostilities and a dramatic but limited Hostage-prisoner exchange marked a major breakthrough in nearly seven weeks of bloody warfare between Israel and Hamas. With a hard-won hiatus intended to last for three more days, posed, a new, posed new dilemmas for the warring parties and their backers, did little to remove the catastrophic specter of ongoing battle and could presage immense new hardships for Palestinian civilians and battered Gaza. Israel vows that the war will continue and has shown no sign of relenting in its determination to destroy Hamas, whose fighters surged across the Gaza frontier on October 7 and killed some 1,200 people in southern Israel and seized an estimated 240 others as captives. That triggered retaliatory Israeli airstrikes that laid waste to much of the narrow coastal enclave, killing more than 13,000 Palestinians by the count of local health officials. For traumatized Gaza residents, one of, one of the more obvious signs the truce had taken hold was unfamiliar silence in the skies overhead. Many seized the opportunity, however, however fleeting it may prove, to venture into ruined streets to stock up on drinking water, cooking oil, flour, and other necessities. Said Lulu, who fled at Gaza City as it was systematically smashed by bombing, was sheltering with 17 relatives in a one-bedroom apartment in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. He had stopped to go see whether his apartment was still intact, but Israeli troops were venting travel north, and anyway, he heard from neighbors that the entire complex had been leveled. We want to go back, but we have no house and no job to go back to, he said. Who will take responsibility for this? For the families of Israel's missing, who banded together to force the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to prioritize their freedom, the day was bittersweet. Cause for rejoicing over the freeing of uh, 13 Israeli women and children, but also a bleak reminder that many more loved ones remained in harm's way inside Gaza. Eleven other foreign nationals, ten of them Thai citizens, 
were freed separately, Israeli officials said. Releases concluding Monday are expected to bring the total freed to 50 Israelis and 150 Palestinians. The Israeli hostages handed over Friday ranged in age from 2 to 85. The eldest person freed, Yaffa Adar, had been shown in video from the day of the attack being spirited away by Hamas in a golf cart. All were kept well away from public view except for a few fleeting glimpses. At Gaza's Rafa border crossing, cameras caught a small girl with long blonde hair being led in the early evening dark from an Egyptian ambulance. Israeli hostages said the freed hostages would be kept sequestered for now in the hospitals, seeing only family members and medical personnel. The paused in, the pause in hostilities throws into sharp relief the split-screen reality inhabited by Israelis and Palestinians, exemplified by the searing question of who bears the ultimate responsibility for the suffering of civilians in Gaza. Palestinians place the, the honest squarely on Israel's devastating bombardment and the harsh curtailment of life's necessities, food, fuel, clean water, medi and medical care. Israel staunchly maintains that moral culpability lies with Hamas, which it says has shown scant concern for Gaza's people. The Israeli army claims to have inflicted substantial damage on Hamas in the course of its air assault and ground operations, but for the militant group, the October 7 attack was an unqualified triumph, humiliating Israel's military and shattering Israel's sense of security. Hamas believes the attack, for all its brutality, put what had been viewed as a languishing Palestinian cause back at the center of the world political map. And it reinvigorated the group's bid to proclaim itself, rather than its widely despised rival, the Palestinian Authority, as the protector of Palestinians' interests, able to wear down Israel through sheer force of will. You have to compare Israel's position at the beginning of the war and now. I think this is the start of a gradual descent from that maximal position, said Oreb Rantawi, director of the Jordan-based Al-Quds Center for Political Studies. Though the initial numbers were small, securing the freedom of 39 of estimated 8,000 Palestinians jailed by Israel was widely viewed as a prestigious feat for Hamas. The plight of the prisoners is an emotional touchstone across the West Bank and Gaza. Over the decades, nearly every Palestinian family has been touched by some point, uh, at some point by the imprisonment of a father, son, an uncle, a sister. Some cases involve years-long family separations over relatively minor infractions, such as throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers. Freed prisoners are customarily hailed as returning heroes. In the West Bank city of Betunia, thousands of people rush to the streets to greet buses delivering the detainees who are quickly swarmed by the cheering crowd. Rowan Abu Zayada, 29, had seven months left of her nine-year sentence for stabbing an Israeli soldier. She said that she and other inmates had learned from radio broadcasts that there was a deal in the making, and that she was told Friday morning that she was among those being freed. I just thank God I get to see her, said her mother, Naima Hemedan, who appeared dazed. Also released was Farouz Albo, a 25-year-old university student who had been in detention for two years for alleged involvement in a stabbing. She denied the accusations against her. 
The manacles have been smashed, she said in a fiery speech to reporters and others gathered around her. The hopes of other Palestinian families were dashed as the day's releases wrapped up. In the West Bank of Janine, Amne Abu Hamed wondered whether her 40-year-old daughter, Yasmin Shabam, previously linked uh, since for links to the militant group Islamic Jihad before being rearrested in March of last year, might be among the free detainees. She was not. It doesn't matter, said her mother. All those released today are my daughters as well. In letting a limited number of Israeli and foreign hostages go, Hamas lost some of its bargaining leverage. But its grip on scores more, including many Israeli soldiers, gives it a powerful weapon to continue to wield against Israel, which in the past has engaged in lopsided swaps to free even a soul captive. Military, even a temporary, militarily, even a temporary halt to Israel's unrelenting assault favors Hamas, analysts said. They have gained a tactical advantage, Bilal Saab, with the, uh, with the defense and security program of the Washington-based Middle East Institute said of Hamas. I do not want to call it a win, given the death and destruction brought on the Palestinian people, but they have gained a practical advantage. For Israel, the deal had many downsides, but the risk was necessary, said Mark Mara Rudman, a Middle East expert in the Clinton and Obama administrations, who was now at the Center for American Progress, a think tank in Washington. Trying to defeat Hamas while also prioritizing the recovery of hostages has required a delicate balancing on Israel's part, holding more than one competing thought in your head at the same time, as she put it. Making every effort possible was critical, both morally and politically, Redmond said. Israel vows to resume the war. Uh, Israel's vow to resume the war is at cross purposes with Arab countries who negotiated the hostage release and want the temporary truce to evolve into a more lasting ceasefire. The international aid agencies, or Gaza's lifeline, maintained that four days is not enough time to deliver supplies to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians displaced from homes and, in some cases, sheltering at UN schools and hospitals. Israel, with U.S. support, has adamantly rejected calls for a formal ceasefire, saying it is determined to eliminate Hamas, whatever the cost. No Americans were among those freed Friday, but President Biden said his government would not stop in that quest. U.S. officials had said they expected three U.S. citizens, including a four-year-old girl, to be among the first 50 hostages to be released. At least seven other Americans are thought to be among the hostages, but it is not clear whether they are civilians or serve in the Israeli army. For the United States, the crisis has posed an array of problems. The Biden administration has enthusiastically embraced Israel and endorsed its right to self-defense in attacking Hamas. But as Israel's bombardment of Gaza took an increasingly devastating toll, Biden and his senior officials, at first privately and now more publicly, have urged Israel to take steps to avoid civilian casualties and called for a series of humanitarian pauses in the fighting to allow food, medicine, water, and fuel into Gaza. Israel has only relented in limited occasions, under intense pressure, administration officials said. Far too many Palestinians have been killed, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken said this month in the strongest criticism of Israel that he has publicly voiced. U.S. officials have refused to say Israel has violated international humanitarian law or the rules of war, 
but they are increasingly isolated globally in that position. In addition with standing at odds with Arab allies, U.S. policy has led to deep divisions in American society within the administration itself and inside the Democratic Party. Numerous employees from the State Department and other government agencies have signed petitions and letters of complaint opposing the policy. And polls show Biden has lost substantial support among young, likely voters over his pro-Israel stance with sympathy for Palestinians and their decades-long quest for an independent state gaining significantly. International pressure was certainly to grow. I reiterate my call for a long-standing humanitarian ceasefire. Philippe uh, Philippe, Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner of the United Nations Agency that oversees Palestinian refugees' issues, said at a news conference Friday in East Jerusalem, People need respite. They deserve calm. They deserve to sleep at night without being anxious whether they will make it through. Lazzarini, who has made two visits to Gaza in recent days, described abysmal conditions, human waste mounting in streets, and nearly a million people crowded into makeshift shelters and schools. Like nearly everyone huddled in Gaza's ruins, Palestinian activist May Rajab hoped for a more durable pause than this one, which fell on her birthday. I wish I could celebrate, but I don't have ingredients for our cake, she said. But anyway, the real celebration happens when it's a total ceasefire. That was war pauses, but chasm remains. By Nabi Bulos, Tracy Wilkinson, and Laura King from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 25th, 2023. Bulos reported from Jerusalem, Wilkinson from Washington, and King from Berlin. We now go on to an opinion article with regards to this. This was actually written earlier uh, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 17, 2023. As the child of a Holocaust survivor, I know Gaza's trauma will last by Elliot Kukla. Nearly 82 years ago, my father was born in Nazi-occupied Belgium. When he was only three weeks old, his own father, Max, was captured and murdered by Nazis. My dad survived because he was hidden by a series of Christian foster homes. I was born in a peaceful time and place, Victoria, Canada, in 1974. But my own life was shaped by those events that happened decades before my birth. As I write this, more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, including 4,000 children. According to Save the Children, more children have been killed in Gaza over the last few weeks than were killed in global conflicts in the last three years combined. I know firsthand that atrocities like this will tear a hole through history that will take more than one generation to heal. My father still ran our family as if we were fleeing from the Gestapo. We lived in tents without running water and moved every six months. As an adult, I was diagnosed with a neurological form of lupus, a disabling autoimmune disease connected to early trauma. Women with PTSD have been found to be nearly three times as likely to develop this disease than those without significant trauma. I was susceptible in part because of my chaotic childhood. There was also epigenetic evidence that mass traumas like the Holocaust, affect the genes of the children and grandchildren of survivors on a cellular level, leaving us predisposed to chronic disease. Political violence is a disability justice issue because it leads to psychological, physical and psychological disabilities immediately and will continue to see them for generations to come. 
in Gaza, sick and disabled people, including children, are at the front lines of attacks. Hussam Abu Safia, a pediatrician in Gaza, writes, Without an urgent resupply of fuel, the lights will go out permanently, and a hospital could turn into a morgue. My father was also deprived of medical care as a child, and that legacy scarred him for life physically and psychologically. While he was in hiding, he got sick with whooping cough. The sound of his cough threatened his own life and the life of the family who sheltered him from Nazis. To spare everyone, he was taken to a Catholic orphanage in the countryside of Belgium. There, nuns cared for him without medicine. When he recovered, a young nun returned him to the dead in the dead of night to the doorstep of his foster family. By then, he was permanently left with respiratory issues and chronic bronchitis. His other wounds were hard to measure, but just as real. As a parent, my dad was hilarious, brilliant, and emotionally distant. He had terrifying rages and little notion of what it meant to shelter children from danger. My dad was one of the lucky ones. He survived, and at nine years old, he was reunited with his mother and new stepfather in Los Angeles. He went into Fairfax High, historically majority Jewish school. His classmates included the children of Hollywood writers and actors who had been blacklisted by McCarthyism. In 1967, the summer of love, he met my mother at a party in the Hollywood Hills. They became ardent anti-Vietnam War protesters, along with a number of Jewish radicals. Growing up, this was what Judaism meant to me, intellectual dissent and peace activism. In rabbinical school, I learned that according to ancient Jewish holy texts, saving a single life is the same as saving a whole world because each of us contains distinct city, distinctive cities of relationships, irreplaceable geographies of passions, and deep oceans of memories. That is one reason more than, a more than 140 of my colleagues and I are calling for peace as part of rabbis for ceasefire along with the swelling Jewish peace movement. However, most majority Amer major American Jews, however, most major American Jewish organizations support this invasion. It is a profound moral injury for me that the community that taught me to value resistance, peace, and the sanctity of each human life is supporting violence and silence dissent, silencing dissent. Many rabbis and other Jewish professionals I know are afraid to speak out for peace and risk because and risk being ostracized from family or synagogues or lose funding for their nonprofit organizations. Now as Gaza is being bombed into a place of dust and ashes, my father is entering the last phase of his life in a hospital room in Toronto. My dad's life once again is tampered uh, to living only within a narrow room while atrocities swirl outside. However, this time, unlike those who are gravely ill in Gaza, my dad is well cared for. He is warm and dry, held and loved. When the time comes, there is, fuel, there is enough fuel and food to ensure that he dies with dignity and ease. My dad didn't enter the world being treated like a person, but he is leaving it being cared with for, for with humanity. Everyone deserves this. That was As the Child of a Holocaust Survivor, I Know Gaza's Trauma Will Last by Elliot Kukla. From the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 17, 2023, Elliot Kukla is a rabbi, writer, and activist based in Oakland. He is the father, he is the author of the forthcoming children's book, The Lazy Day. Okay, we got a couple of articles here from the 
uh, local articles here from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, also for Saturday, November 25th, 2023. This first one, protesters call APAC head baby killer outside home. Smoke devices ignited as Brentwood incident is being investigated as possible hate crime by Matthew Ors- Orm- Ormset, Melody Peterson, and Angie Orellana Hernandez. Los Angeles police have launched an investigation into a protest Thursday at the Brentwood home of the president of a pro-Israeli lobbying group with footage on social media showing protesters igniting smoke devices in the street and spattering fake blood on the property. The incident, which police are investigating as a possible hate crime, is the latest in Los Angeles after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7, prompting Israel to bombard and invade Gaza, the Palestinian enclave that Hamas controls. The crisis has roiled Los Angeles, home to large populations of Jews and Palestinians. On November 1st, Cantor's Deli, an iconic Jewish restaurant in the Fairfax district, was defaced with anti-Semitic messages spray-painted below a mural depicting the history of Jews in Los Angeles. Los Angeles Police Department officers responded Thursday morning to the 11900 block of Foxborough Drive, where a group of protesters was causing a disturbance, according to a statement posted on X. Police made no arrests at the scene, but were investigating the incident as suspected vandalism, assault with a deadly weapon, and a hate crime. The statement did not name the owner of the home that was targeted. Officer Melissa Ohana, an LAPD spokeswoman, said the department doesn't identify victims of crimes. But in a post on X, Mayor Karen Bass appeared to identify the victim as Michael Tuchin, T-U-C-H-I-M, a Los Angeles attorney and president of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. I spoke with Michael Tuchin and Chief Michael Moore about yesterday's disturbing incident, Bass wrote. Hate and violence will not be tolerated in our city. LAPD will continue to work with city and business leaders to keep Angelino safe. Bass later removed Tuchin's name from the post, saying it was for the safety of those involved. Tuchin didn't immediately respond to a message seeking comment. A video posted by the People's City Council, Los Angeles showed a group of people standing outside a home that the organization identified as Tuchin's, holding a banner that read, F your holiday baby killer. A red liquid had been poured on the driveway. Small white bundles were scattered on the driveway and front lawn. Footage posted by Sam Yebri, a former city council candidate, showed smoke billowing in the street as people yelled and a siren droned. Brian Humphrey, a spokesman for the Los Angeles Fire Department, said a person contacted the department at 10.37 a.m. about an unspecified incident in the 11900 block of Foxborough Drive. During the call, it was determined that the police and not the fire department should respond. Humphrey said no fire units were dispatched to the scene. The People's Council Los Angeles also participated in a march of hundreds of protesters supporting the Palestinian uh, Palestinians through the Grove on Black Friday, disrupting holiday shoppers before stopping traffic on Fairfax Avenue outside the mall. The protest dubbed Shut It Down for Palestine was largely peaceful, despite the angry shouts and chants for ceasefire to the war. Police stood between a small group of Israeli supporters and the protesting crowd, which waved Palestinian flags and chanted, Free the people, free the land. 
Some shoppers nodded in support while others looked bewildered as the protesters walked under a suspended Santa and his reindeer at around the mall's Christmas tree. Meanwhile, across town in Glendale, a group of about 30 pro-Palestinian protesters also gathered on Central Avenue outside uh, the Galleria and Americana shopping centers. No shopping until Palestinian is free, one person shouted through a megaphone. The mall is closed today. Protesters on both locations said the demonstrations, was last, which lasted more than two hours, had been organized in part by the Palestinian Youth Movement. The Answer Coalition, whose acronym stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, also helped organize the actions locally. That was protesters called APEC Head Baby Killer Outside Home by Matthew Ormseth, Melody Peterson, and Angie Orellana Hernandez. And this next one is called Comedian Arrested on Suspicion of DUI. Haddish was found inside a car blocking road in Beverly Hills, police say, by Sarah Parvini. Tiffany Haddish has been released from police custody in Beverly Hills after being cited on suspicion of, drunk, of driving under the influence, police said Friday afternoon. The actor was arrested early Friday morning after authorities received a call about a vehicle blocking the road on Beverly Drive near Dayton Way around 5.45 a.m., according to the Beverly Hills Police Department. Police said they found a hottish inside the car. She had performed just hours earlier at the Laugh Factory as part of a Thanksgiving event, according to media reports. Police said she is expected to appear in court in about 30 days. It was the second time since 2022 that Haddish had been in police custody. Last year, the Emmy and Grammy Award-winning Renner was arrested in Peachtree City, Georgia, south of Atlanta, after police received a call about a driver who had allegedly fallen asleep at the wheel. Haddish was detained and charged with driving under the influence. The actor has starred in several TV and film projects this year, including Disney's Haunted Mansion and the second season of Apple TV Plus's The After Party. That was Comedian Arrested on Suspicion of DUI by Sarah Parvini. And both of those are from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 25th, 2023. All right, and here is something from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 20th, 2023. That Disney magic eludes Bob Iger. XCEO was brought back to fix the Tilting Mouse House. No one said it would be easy by Meg James. During his first 15 years running the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger had a magical touch. Acquisitions of Pixar Animation, Marvel Entertainment, and Lucasfilm turbocharged the company's creative engines. Movies minted billions of dollars, Sports King ESPN spawned staggering profits, and Disney's theme parks teemed with delighted guests. Iger embraced the role of celebrity chief executive, flirting briefly with a bid for president. As the industry's senior statesman, he was treated with reverence. As media analyst Michael Nathanson noted in an earnings call this month, Iger, during his first CEO stint, had presided over one of the most amazing content cycles in film we've ever seen. But no longer. What are you doing to fix the film slate? Nathanson asked. In the years since Iger returned to replace his beleaguered successor Bob Chapek, he has been trying to fix one problem after another in, the nearly, in nearly every corner of the Burbank behemoth. Disney organizational structure was broken. Expenses had soared. 
Disney's fans were furious about price hikes at the vaunted theme parks, and Florida's governor, presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, was taking swipes, saying the company was too woke. Then in May 11, then in May, 11,500 screenwriters went on strike, joining later, joined later by 160,000 actors. The film business that Nathan Stern referred to, which powers Disney's multifaceted business, has been of mounting concern. This month, Disney's The Marvels opened in theater to a tepid $46 million in ticket sales. A disappointing start for a film that cost more than $200 million to make and the weakest yet for a Marvel Studios picture. The uneven performance of Lucasfilm and Disney's live action, uh, Disney's animation and live action releases have also raised worries. All had, that had, has made Iger's second tenure of rough rides so far. Since the beginning of the year, Disney has eliminated 8,000 jobs as part of a company-wide effort to cut $7.5 billion in costs. Amid the decline of traditional TV, the company is considering selling ABC and its eight own stations in addition to taking on a financial partner or two for the company's ESPN sports empire. Disney stock is trading at about half its value of nearly three years ago. Earlier this year, Iger vanquished a proxy fight challenge by activist investor Nelson Peltz. But now Peltz and former Marvel chairman Isaac Ike Perlmutter are circling again. With movie and TV production stalled for much of the year, Disney was facing a frightening 2024, with gaps in its film slate and ABC's lineup. Iger finally stepped in to lead the entertainment industry's effort to broker a truce with striking writers, then actors, by offering contracts that included 5% to 7% pay hikes. The resolutions marked a stark departure from July, when Iger, from a picturesque Rocky Mountain retreat from millionaires and billionaires, said striking union members' pay, demand, pay demands were not realistic. When Disney employees gathered outdoors last month to celebrate the famed studio's 100th birthday, dozens of striking actors smoldering over the months-long contract stalemate protested boisterously outside the mouse-eared wild compound, prompting the Disney security to briefly close an entrance to the lot. You tell us you're trying to negotiate with us, but instead you're throwing a big party? A disgusted sag after strike Captain Jeff Torres said at the time, Dude, read the room. The sour moon marks a sharp contrast from last November when Chapek was dispatched by the board and Iger was welcomed as a returning hero. Investors are big fans of Bob Iger, given his history of leading Disney through major content acquisitions and the pivot to streaming. Wells Fargo media analyst Stephen Cahal, or Cahal wrote the night Iger was rehired. The street will see him as a steady leader in uncertain times. That largely remains true. But the Disney that the 72-year-old executive now runs is different from the one he left, and it is confronting unique challenges. Two major forces have Royal Disney and other traditional entertainment companies. The rise of Netflix, followed by Iger's 2017 decision to plunge the company headfirst into streaming, an initiative that Iger launched with vigor before his departure. Bob came back to a business that had fundamentally changed, his friend and former ABC colleague Ted Harbear said in an interview. Sure, it was on his watch, 
but it was actually Netflix and their viewers that made the decision to change how media is consumed. T.D. Cowan media analyst Doug Krutz sounded a refrain that's become common in Hollywood over the last year. If he was thinking about his legacy, he should have stayed in retirement, Krutz said. Iger, through a spokesman, declined to comment for the story. Disney has amassed more than $10 billion in streaming losses over the last four years, according to regulatory filings. Warner Brothers, NBC Universal, and Paramount Global followed Disney's lead, each spending billions of dollars to compete in the streaming wars. Today's bounty of streamers, stocked with tantalizing shows, including Disney Plus's The Mandalorian and Loki, has led to a perilous de- decline of linear television. The industry's cash cow has long been the billions of dollars that entertainment companies receive in monthly programming fees from pay TV companies, including Charter Communications and DirecTV. But now, the pay TV business is teetering, a trend Iger saw coming before many others and now has a hand in accelerating. A decade ago, ESPN networks were distributed to more than 100 million U.S. homes. Now the linear channels are available in fewer than 70 million. They took an industry model that made a lot of money and they burned it to the ground, Kruitz said. The, the move to streaming has created tensions. In September, for the first time in decades, Disney displayed weakness in, contrast, in contract negotiations, resulting in a 10-day blackout of Disney channels on Charter's Spectrum cable service. Charter threatened to drop Disney's channels for good before the two companies cobbled together an accord. Disney gave up distribution of Freeform and other small channels. There used to be a day when Bob Iger and Disney could stabilize the ground beneath them, said Mark Gannis, president of Sports Corp. Limited. But that day has come and gone for the whole industry. Technology has altered the foundation and he can't stabilize it the way he used to. TV executives recognize the future lies in streaming and Iger and others have defended the aggressive push. Experts anticipate there will be room for only three to four dominant streaming services, and most think that Disney will be in the mix. Iger knew the evolution would be painful. In his 2019 book, The Ride of a Lifetime, Iger described the enthusiasm surrounding the decision two years earlier to buy a streaming platform to launch the streaming services Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Board members signaled speed was of the essence, he wrote. We were now hastening the disruption of our own business and the short-term losses we were going to be were going to be significant, he wrote. Iger conceded that initially he wasn't planning to be so bold. I'd assumed we would transition to the new model in baby steps, slowly building the apps and determining what content would live on them, Iger wrote. But because the response was so positive, the entire strategy took on a greater sense of urgency. Iger negotiated a blockbuster deal to buy much of Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox. Investors cheered the move, which was designed to bolster Disney's content arsenal. In March 2019, Disney finalized the $71.3 billion Fox purchase. The deal saddled the company with billions of dollars in debt, and opinions are mixed over the wisdom of Iger's play for Fox. Peltz and Perlmuttel have bemoaned the pricey purchase. Peltz, through his try and fund management, 
accused Disney executives of exhibiting poor judgment by materially overpaying. With the added content including Avatar, The Simpsons, Deadpool, and FX, and National Geographic channels, Disney geared up for its November 2019 launch of Disney+. During a presentation in a cavernous soundstage in Burbank earlier that year to unveil its streaming strategy, investors grasped when Disney announced that the core service would be offered for just $6.99 a month. Consumers loved the low price, and Disney Plus was an immediate hit. Within five months of its launch, the COVID-19 pandemic settled in, dealing the rest of the company a devastating blow. Disney's theme parks and cruise lines shut down, movie theaters went dark, and ESPN struggled to fill time with live sports. By this time, Iger had handed the CEO mantle to Chappick, but Iger remained on as an executive chairman through 2021. During the 11 months Iger was away, Disney increased its content budget to drive streaming subscriptions and financial losses soared. Chappick promised Wall Street that Disney Plus would have more than 230 million subscribers by 2024. Not even close. Disney Plus has 112 million subscribers at the end of September, plus nearly 38 million from its Disney Plus Hotstar service in India. Turning on the programming fire hose to feed the streaming platforms in many ways now haunts Disney. Critics blamed the production ramp-up for stretching the studios and possibly damaging the Marvel, Pixar, and Star Wars brands. The burnout isn't just at the studio level. Visual effects artists uh, who work on Marvel productions say they are drained by the long hours to meet difficult deadlines. Marvel Studios and Walt Disney Pictures FV. Uh, VFX workers this fall voted to unionize under the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. The mandate for, for Disney Studios to support both the theatrical window and Disney Plus has overtaxed their creative engine, said Crutes, the analyst. It's very hard to scale quality. For two decades, Pixar popped up one blockbuster after another, including Toy Story, Finding Nemo, and WALL-E but the recent efforts haven't achieved the same levels of success. Its latest, Elemental, had a soft opening but recovered in the weeks following its release, generating nearly $500 million in worldwide ticket sales. Walt Disney Animation's upcoming effort, Wish, a tribute to Disney's 100-year legacy and its future, is coming out to mixed reviews. But the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been stretched the most. Since the franchise's peak in 2019 with Avengers Endgame, the Kevin Feige-run superhero powerhouse has churned out multiple shows for Disney Plus alongside its pipeline of several movies a year. There is simply too much Marvel content out there, said Terence McSweeney, a film scholar and teacher at Solent University in Britain who has written extensively about Marvel properties. Instead of delighting fans as we might have expected it to, the abundance seems to have alienated many of them in recent years. Iger responded this month to concerns about low quality at the studios. While Disney had four uh, really strong titles in the last fiscal year, starting with Avatar The Way of Water, Iger acknowledged during the November 8 earnings call that the pandemic created a lot of challenges creatively for everybody, including for us. Launching so many projects didn't help either. I've always felt that quantity can be actually a negative when it comes to quality, Iger said. 
That's exactly what happened. We lost some focus. The solution, he said, was to make fewer films with a focus on high standards. In the next fiscal year, Disney plans to spend $25 billion on programming, $2 billion less than the end than the just ended fiscal year. We're all rolling up our sleeves, including myself, to do just that, he said. We have obviously great assets and great stories to tell. Iger returned last November with a two-year contract. But in July, Disney's board extended his stay through 2026. The extension, the board said, provides continuity of leadership during the company's ongoing transformation. Iger has admitted that he needs time to tackle the myriad challenges, including preparing to take the flagship ESPN directly to consumers and finding equity partners that can also invest or help distribute the channel. They have to find ways to make up for the loss of revenue as cable subscriptions continue to fall, said Gannis, the sports analyst. And they have to become more relevant to a younger audience that has never had cable or satellite TV. In the most recent quarter, Disney showed financial improvement. Streaming losses narrowed to $387 million compared with the year earlier when it was $1.47 billion. The core Disney Plus service added nearly 7 million subscribers and executives reaffirmed that the streaming business, which includes Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, would be profitable by the end of September, thanks in part to cost cuts and price hikes. The company's stock responded positively. Iger's biggest challenge might be the one that has vexed him the most, finding a successor. He recently brought back two former top deputies, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, as consultants to help him plot strategy for ESPN and possible financial deals. Both have left the company after being passed over for the top job and joined forces to create uh, the entertainment investment firm Candle Media. Among potential internal candidates, there's ESPN chairman Jimmy Pitaro and the two chairmen of Disney Entertainment Media, Dana Walden, who oversees television, and Alan Bergman, the film chief. Who knows who will be the successor to Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, associate dean at the Yale School of Management. You could reach into that pool almost blindly, and anyone who you would pull out could make a great successor. Disney is not expected to make that call for another year or two, and Iger has said he won't be leaving until the company fully makes the streaming transition. While we still have work to do, uh, improving results, our progress has all allowed us to move beyond this period of fixing and begin building our own business again, Iger told investors earlier this month. That was That Disney Magic Eludes Bob Iger by Meg James. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 20, 2023. Here's something from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 22, 2023. Austin Altman is in talks to return as Open AI CEO by Ed Ludlow, Emily Chang, and Ashley Vance. Sam Altman, members of the members of the OpenAI board and the company's interim chief executive have opened negotiations aimed at a possible reinstatement of the ousted CEO at the artificial intelligence startup he co-founded, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Discussions are happening among Altman, CEO Emmett Shear, and at least one board member, Adam D'Angelo, 
said the people who asked not to be identified because the deliberations are private and they may not come to fruition. The talks also involve some of OpenAI's investors, many of whom are pushing for Altman's reinstatement, one of the people said. If Altman returns, it would be a CEO of the company, according to one person. In one scenario being discussed, Altman would become a director on a transitional board, one of the people said. Former Salesforce Incorporated Company CEO Brett Taylor could also serve as a director on a new board, multiple people said. That the board and Altman are in communication is a significant development because until Monday, the directors largely refused to engage with the executive they fired Friday, several people have said. OpenAI shareholders angling for Altman's reinstatement include Thrive Capital, Kosla Ventures, and Tiger Global Management, people with knowledge of the matter told Bloomberg. Prominent venture capital firm Sequoia Capital is working alongside the group, another person said. On Monday, OpenAI Vice President of Global Affairs Anna Makanju sent a memo to staff saying there had been intense discussions involving the board, Altman and Scheer, to unify the company. The message came after the majority of workers threatened to quit if Altman were not reinstated. There was a push to end the chaos over the company's leadership before Thanksgiving, one person said. The board has come under intense scrutiny for its decision to fire Altman, saying that the CEO was not consistently candid in his communications. In the days since, board members and staffers have said that the CEO's removal was unrelated to malfeasance or safety, leaving an information vacuum. Satya Nadella, CEO of OpenAI's largest investor of Microsoft Corp., has said publicly that he has been given no explanation. Even CEO Scheer has been in the dark, according to people familiar with the matter. He has told people close to OpenAI that he doesn't plan to stick around if the board can't clearly communicate to him in writing its reasoning for Altman's sudden firing. That was ousted Altman is in talks to return as OpenAI CEO by Ed Ludlow, Emily Chang, and Ashley Vance from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. Ludlow, Chang, and Vance write for Bloomberg. All right, and now on to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, October 20th, 2023. Scripting legends. Nearing 80, Eric Roth is still trying to suss what's next by Jeffrey Fleischman. The man on the porch wonders about what will endure. The stories, voices, and years, the way they gathered and played out, making him a reoccurring whisper in the lives of others. If he were writing a movie, and he has written many, he might pencil in for the camera to linger on the gray beard, wrinkled eyes, and the way the face shadowed by a ball cap looks to the house across the street. What will happen to the ones who live there? How will it all turn out when he's gone? Many words stretch ahead before then, and Eric Roth, who bets on horses and is nearing 80, is busy on scripts of for two love stories, a science fiction fantasy, a pilot for a possible Netflix series about the Kennedys, an ecological tale, a stage adaption of High Noon, and preparing for Friday's opening of Killers of the Flower Moon, a 1920s crime saga he wrote with Martin Scorsese about greed and murder against Osage people in Oklahoma.
Roth is one of the most successful and admired screenwriters in Hollywood. He's been nominated six times for an Academy Award for Adapted Screenplay, winning with the whimsical and much-loved Forrest Gump. He's worked with Steven Spielberg, Michael Mann, David Fincher, Akira Kurosawa, and other important directors. He's a master at narrative and knows the intersection of artistic integrity and commercial appeal. But like a voice showing his mother a good report card, he, even after all the citations, seeks validation and inclinations shared by many in this town, but seldom expressed. Maybe something you can say about me is that you probably don't know this person, <clears throat> but he's been a part of your life with all these movies, said Roth. I was always a good writer, and I got things made, but nothing probably that very good until Forrest Gump. That opened up a whole world, he added. I wouldn't mind if I could go back to being 50 and know what I know now. I want to enhance whatever I've done. That is Roth. Looking back, peering ahead. What is the essence, the legacy? He is at once confident. He might be thinking as he reads this, hey, let's limit the ex uh, exposition and stick to subtext. And a fierce and honest critic of his work and that of others. When speaking of the praise that he has coming that has come his way, he pauses and smiles. He has the mischievous eyes of a bookie and says, I would trade all my movies for Sunset Boulevard or The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Wouldn't you? The breadth of his films over six decades and is an exploration not only of cinema, but also of the fascinations and torments of mainstream America, from the propulsive intelligence of the insider the story of a tobacco company whistleblower, to the remake of A Star is Born, starring Bradley Cooper, and the comet of fame that is Lady Gaga, to the short film Ellis, where Robert De Niro wanders through an Ellis Island snowfall as an unrequited ghost. Roth's instincts and empathy for his characters, a number dwell at the crossroads of isolation and redemption, are grounded in a humanity that can be fanciful, searingly real, and, as critics have noted, occasionally sentimental, like life. Eric is Forrest Gump personified, with a feather floating down and all that crap. He's a romantic, said Jeffrey Wood Copeland, who met Roth nearly half a century ago at the Del Mar racetrack in a shared passion for betting on horses, which later led to Roth's work on the HBO series Luck. But then you're with him at the track and he's trying to solve an equine puzzle. He's competitive as hell. If he could handicap horses the way he can movies, well, he'd be on to something. A writer's ego is often as thin as a moth's wing, especially in the collaborated world of filmmaking, where, unlike the novelist, the singular vision belongs to the director, not the scribe. Roth has felt the sting of the subservient. Robert Redford replaced him with another writer on The Horse Whisperer, and Spielberg brought in playwright Tony Kushner to work on Roth's script from Munich, a morality play about Israel's assassin, Israeli assassins targeting Palestinian militants. Such are the nicks and acceptances of the trade. In the best cases, Roth said a third rail version rises between writer and director. I fight with everybody. You just don't get why they don't get something, he said. He was hurt by Kirshner's hiring, but Roth, who shared a screenwriting credit, called Munich a wonderful film, 
and has noted that he would never write anything as inspired as Kushner's Tony Award-winning Angels in America. Often in conversations with Ross, with Roth, one hears how the batter, the, the battler he boxed as a youth in Brooklyn, holds his ground until that moment of no, until that moment not of surrender but of equanimity. I think everybody directors have done pretty great in my wor- in my words. He said, in most cases, they've probably approved everything to some extent. A few bits later, he takes himself to task. I think I screwed up the movie Suspect, which Cher was in. I should have had Liam Neeson, uh, the Liam Neeson character, be guilty, and not all the melodrama I put at the at the end. He has had a few notable disappointments, including Lucky You, twenty o seven, a screenplay he wrote with Curtis Hansen about a Las Vegas poker player, and the overwrought post-apocalyptic The Postman, which was co-written with Brian Helgeland and starred Kevin Costner. The TCM biography page for Roth notes that the film proved to be almost ruinous for all involved, especially Roth, who had, up to that point, a number of misfires and only one big success. But after that, wrote TMC, Roth's career began an upward trajectory that rarely wavered off course. Eric is on fire right now, creatively, said director, writer, and producer Judd Apatow. He's funny and wise. It's almost comedic how strong his work is. When you're young, you have this madness of wanting to establish yourself and make your name. Eric never lost that. He's always in the same emotional space about it. He's hungry like he just broke through, even though he did many decades ago. He added, All writers are tortured, but of all the writers I know, Eric seems to be in the least amount of pain. On recent afternoons, wearing jeans, slippers, and a loose shirt, Roth came down from his writing desk and sat on the porch. The quiet was at times broken by a workman's hammer, a carpenter's saw, and Ernie, the mailman who waved and retreated with his bundle into the shade. Roth crossed his legs and settled in, ruminative and open to possibility, as if a nephew or cousin had dropped by to catch a bit of news. How do you want to do this? he asked an interviewer. Let's just talk. Yeah, I love that. The air was cool, and Roth's 78, who was as sly as he is reflective, mentioned the meticulous of, meticulousness of Fincher, whom, with whom he worked on Mank, and the generosity of Scorsese. He noted that the novel Moby Dick was about the burdens and complexities of man. He wondered who Shakespeare looked to for inspiration, and remembered that day in the late 1960s when he and his first wife were very loaded on acid when they sat through 2001 A Space Odyssey three times. Much has changed since then. Streaming, superheroes, and corporate takeovers have reshaped the film industry, and the 40-foot screen has shrunk from many to a glimmer in the hand. The kinds of movies Roth makes are becoming rarer. He understands. You can't build shrines. You have to adapt to new, for- to new forces, which he discovered when he did not anticipate the phenomenon of binge TV while an executive producer on Netflix's House of Cards. But still, he said, what was Fellini about? Kurosawa? How about Kubrick in, tw- in 2001? Those kinds of movies will continue. People will pop up with something extraordinary. But they'll be fewer and far between because they're harder to get done. That seemed the uh, that seemed the fate of here, 
which he and Robert Zemeckis, who directed Forrest Gump, adapted from a graphic novel about events that unfold from dinosaurs to family on a piece of property over millenniums. It stars Tom Hanks and Robin Wright. The Gump team was back together, said Rob, and we thought, oh my God, we're going to have a wild success. We sent it out for, for auction. Crickets. The film was eventually backed by Miramax and will be released next year by Sunny Pictures. Eric has left a deep imprint on American cinema, says Scorsese, who worked closely with Roth on detailing Osage traditions and customs in adapting David Grant's bestseller, Killers of the Flower Moon. His sheer breadth of interest and his knowledge of his sheer, his sheer, his sheer breadth of his interest and his knowledge, his remarkable sense of structure, his collaborative nature, his feeling for movie, movie making and how it works, of how what's on the page has to translate to what happens up there on the screen. Starring De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon is a dismaying portrait, portrait of American racism as white opportunists seek to fleece the oil wealth of the Osage. The screenplay wins through backroom uh, plots, burial ceremonies, mysticism, and the intimacies of a husband and wife caught in a deadly crucible. Roth's characters are both evil and righteous, cast against a nation's troubling history. Roth was a red diaper baby, the Jewish son of communists. His father was a newspaper man and university teacher, and his mother was an executive at United Artists. He grew up in a house of literature and made his way as a boy to the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn, where he watched Invaders from Mars from the Balcony. Then came Giant and Lawrence of Arabia and the big studio films that would collide with new realist auteurs who would bring Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde. Roth worked with underground filmmakers and attended UCLA Film School where he won the Samuel Goldwyn Writing Award. I found this medium that could capture it all and give you an emotion and leave you with an image in your head, said Roth, whose family moved to Los Angeles when he was in high school. I think Francis Ford Coppola said that the great movies exist on some other side of the moon where Don Corleone is still alive. They just continue to go on and, you know, inside what those moments are. I have tried to do that. I, I think I've succeeded. How words move, the shades and colors, the way they rise and spin, hit bone or soar toward the cosmos. Phil Roth's mornings in an office where he writes next to his Oscar and a framed photo of a marquee advertising his early film, The Nickel Ride. He was known for years for a long scripts laced with prose. When he was working on The Insider, he wrote a scene with more than a page of monologue for Al Pacino, who played Lowell Bergman, a 60 Minutes producer. Pacino looked at the passage and said, I can do that with a look. When you, What you leave out is more important than what you leave in, said Roth. The silence is telling. I'm not as good at that. I want to say things. As I've gotten older, I've tried to say less. Less is more. I've always believed that in time, that in, I've always believed that, I've always believed in that, but sometimes I run on. You have to keep people on the journey. It's so hard to do well. Subtext is the key, he added. That's the best writing. I'm getting there still. The great novelists, painters, and filmmakers can do it. He talked more about writing as if the porch, uh, where he where a cane waited by the door, 
were confessional of sorts, where words were parsed and measured into a disar disarming self-awareness. I'm a frustrated novelist. I wish I had written a book. I feel like I'm not a complete writer. That's real writing to me. Screenwriting's a great craft. I think it can be artful at it. I'm not sure it's a great art form, though. The best of Roth's scripts have the expanse and idiosyncrasy of a novel and inspire indelible moments. Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks, sitting with a box of chocolates uh, recounting his life story, a zealot in history, on a bus bench in Savannah, Georgia. Lowell Bergman, Pacino, standing in the waves of an approaching storm, desperate to keep a phone signal as he calms an anxious and nervous source. Benjamin Button, Brad Pitt, aging backward, rewinding from old man to infant in a tale about the mysteries and heartbreak of time and mortality. Part of the sentiment in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button comes from Roth asking his mother on her deathbed if she was afraid. She said, no, I'm curious. Roth has had three wives, including his current spouse, Dr. Ann Peters, an endocrinologist who specializes in diabetes and is a professor at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Among Roth's children are Alec, a director, Jeffrey, a screenwriter, and Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Vanessa. He loved writing amid the chaos and voices of family, but wondered, as one of his characters might do, whether he was a good husband. Something was broken and selfish with him, he said, not his wives. He wasn't specific, but he gave an anecdote, perhaps a metaphor, of being younger and more wild and going to Tower Records at 2 a.m. and then to a dinner at 4 a.m. That wasn't necessarily fair to my wife, said Roth, who also has six grandchildren. I never wanted to feel I was trapped in the quiet lives of desperation. I've grown up. I don't feel the same desperation. He added, I always loved a house full of children. When they grew up and left, I couldn't, and I couldn't hear their footsteps anymore. It broke my heart. A moment of beauty in one breath, and another a flaw in the fabric, like that day in 2008 when he learned within hours that he had been nominated for a Golden Globe, that he had, and that he had lost his retirement money in Bernie Madoff's multi-billion-dollar Ponzi scheme. Scheme. I'm the biggest sucker who ever walked the face of the earth, Roth said at the time. He later recouped a fraction of his savings. Eric is very comfortable criticizing himself, and even more comfortable criticizing you, said Apatow, who often stops by Roth's porch and gives him scripts to read. He will not hold back. He will tell you the truth every single time. You almost have to mentally prepare yourself to sit down with Eric. It doesn't mean he's right, but Eric is totally comfortable offending you, very constructively, very thoughtful. Thoughtfully, it is the restlessness in him as if a man content, con content but unfinished, a writer in need of a perfect sentence, a clever twist or, of dialogue. So much is in the details, the ones seen and unseen that draw a character in full. When Roth was working on Year of the Dragon, 1985, starring Mickey Rourke, who played a cop, the actor was given a wallet with a draft card, a license, pictures, and a fortune cookie message. I'm not sure Mickey ever looked at it, Roth said, but it was to me an embodiment of what you need to prove a character, so you know all his psychological manifestations, what his childhood was like, what's his voice, 
Voices have to be different and individual like we all are. He's found voices in many places, conversations overheard, memories recalled, a song on the radio. At time, psilocybin, he did a lot of hallucinogenics in the 1960s, helps his creativity. I do more than meet a microdose, he said with a reminiscing smile. If the floor isn't opening up beneath me, then it's no good. That's what scares people. It can be dangerous if not done correctly, but it takes away some of the things that have stopped you from discovering yourself. You can't be more available. He is reminded these days of human frailty. Screenwriter Bo Goldman, whom Roth revered, died at age 90 in July. He visits TV writer and producer David Milch, who, who is the same age as Roth and has Alzheimer's. Roth turns out screenplays quicker than he used to and tends to use and, ten, and tends to the wide universe of people I adore. Not long ago, he attended De Niro's 80th birthday party in New York. Scorsese was there, along with other older actors and filmmakers whose work may long play on the other side of Coppola's moon. So much comes back to the porch. The afternoon light and the cool threads of ocean air. The slipping away of time, a phrase, a gesture, the way a child glides across a lawn or a man with fewer years ahead than behind finds recompense. He spoke of exploring some definition about God, and, and maybe he doesn't exist. But this whole idea of what comes next is important, even if it's oblivion. I'm still trying to figure out what's next. Maybe I've got two, maybe ten years left. Put the morphine in me. What am I thinking about? It's like my, it's like, is it my mother? Is like my mother? I'm curious. Is it fear? I don't know. He let the question linger. He doesn't mind silences. There are stories beyond words. That was Scripting Legends by Jeffrey Fleischman from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20th, 2023. And speaking of Eli Roth, here is an article regarding his latest movie, just in time for this past weekend, Thanksgiving. This is from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Thursday, November 16, 2023. Eli Roth's feast of gore turns stale. The slasher romp Thanksgiving started as a joke trailer and hasn't much evolved by Katie Walsh. Gather around the table, horror fans, because Eli Roth is finally serving up his long gestating holiday feast, the seasonal slasher movie Thanksgiving. The idea for this film got rolling some 16 years ago with the 2007 Quentin Tarantino Robert Rodriguez double feature Grindhouse, in which Roth and his longtime friend Jeff Rendell cooked up a joke trailer inspired by the love of themed horror movies and a Massachusetts childhood spent just down the road from Plymouth, the site of the first Thanksgiving. When horror fans first got their eyes on the Thanksgiving trailer, it sparked a fervent appetite for the whole meal. But with the full film finally hitting theaters after 16 years of discussion and development, it proves the adage, also true for Thanksgiving meals, that there can be too much of a good thing. Thanksgiving is an enthusiastic slasher romp in which Roth is clearly having a ball, making his childhood dreams come true. But the problem here is the underbaked script, co-written with Rendell. 
The film has been reverse-engineered around the holiday-themed kills, Black Friday mob, electric carving knife, turkey roasting, and references to the original trailer and other classic horror movies. The script takes the shape of a loose take on Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer, with our killer, known as John Carver, stalking a group of teens in a revenge plot. Thanksgiving doesn't try to deconstruct the genre. Its only self-reflection comes with the requisite references. But the characters are thinly written, lacking motivation, and the central mystery is hopelessly muddled. Our heroine is Nell Velacroix as Jessica. She could have easily swapped roles with social media star Addison Rae, who herself plays vaguely mean popular girl Gabby. Both are brunettes with long wavy hair and similarly wan screen abilities. The plot starts on Thanksgiving when Jessica's father, Rick Hoffman, the owner of the Wright Mart Big Box Store, starts his Black Friday sale a day early. A mob frothing for free waffle irons starts a vicious stampede after they're taunted by Jessica's snotty group of friends who sneaked into the store early. Mayhem ensues, lives are lost, etc. All that's left is a haunting social media video and a sense of community grief and trauma. Fast forward a year later, and this John Carver character, outfitted in pilgrim finery, has been hunting down everyone involved in the melee for a deadly dinner party. It's up to Jessica to track down the killer's identity. Is he one of two boyfriends? Since the bumbling sheriff Nulon, Patrick Dempsey, proves to be utterly useless. Roth, a horror fan and dedicated student of the genre, can stage and shoot an innovative suspense sequence. The violence is sadistic and gory. The setups are inventive and engaging, but he rushes through them and doesn't let anything breathe. It's the connective tissue, the gristle, between the kills that is seriously lacking. Local color is sprinkled on top like a garnish, not incorporated as a part of the whole, and the story and movement from scene to scene hardly makes sense. It's only the prior knowledge of horror tropes and a curiosity about who's under the carver mask that keep this movie keep this moving forward. There's also the sense that this holiday meal just might be a little stale. Certain set pieces like a cheerleader on a trampoline might have played well back in the wild west of the mid of the mid-aughts, but in 2023, it's cringeworthy, and Roth seems to know that. He rushes through it as if he's checking a box for the fans. His centerpiece of the table is a roasting sequence that reminds us why he excelled in the torture porn era, but overall, Thanksgiving feels incredibly juvenile, perhaps due to its genesis so long ago. If Thanksgiving had to be any, any specific dish on the holiday table, it would be stuffing. Disparate chunks tossed together and baked. Stuffing is a dish where old bread goes to shine. A cheap and easy crowd pleaser. But this particular serving of it is missing a crucial element. The binder. Without it, it's just a crumbly mess. It might taste good for a bite or two, but Eli Roth's Thanksgiving isn't a full meal. That was Eli Roth's Feast of Gore Turns Stale by Katie Walsh from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, 
Thursday, November 16, 2023. It's called Thanksgiving, rated R for strong bloody horror, violence, and gore, pervasive language, and some sexual material. Running time, 1 hour, 46 minutes. It is now playing in wide release. And we move on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 6, 2023. Bravo made her a star, but now. Bethany Frankel has choice words about a housewife's boss network union bid by Meredith Blake. Bethany Frankel is the first to admit she's done well for herself on reality TV. The former star of The Real Housewives of New York City, who once struggled to pay the rent on her small Manhattan apartment, used her spot on the Bravo reality series to tirelessly promote a cocktail business she sold for a reported $100 million. Since uh, she, she left the show, started in a spin-off, then returned to the mothership a few years later to the delight of fans. Now a reality TV producer in her own right, Frankel has arguably gotten more out of a role on a basic cable reality TV show than anyone not named Kardashian or, Kardashian or Jenner. Yet Frankel has also become one of the most scathing critics of Bravo, the Real Housewives franchise, and its executive producer, Andy Cohen. This summer, shortly after members of the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists went on strike, she began posting on social media about the need for reality TV performers to form a union and push for improved pay and working conditions. Those initial salvos have blossomed into a movement that Frankel, ever the enthusiastic marketer, has anointed the reality reckoning. She has teamed with powerful attorneys Mark Garagos and Brian Friedman to launch an investigation into reality TV working conditions and has gotten support from SAG-AFTRA on her efforts. On her podcast, Rewives, she has conducted long, probing interviews about the perils of Bravo's celebrity with her former R-H-O-N-Y co-star and estranged best friend Jill Zarin, former Real Housewives of Atlanta star Nene Leakes, and Raquel Levis, a cast member on Vanderpump Rules, a spin-off of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, whose affair with co-star Tom Sandoval became a social media obsession this spring. Though she is not the only reality TV star to call for reforming the industry, Frankel is, is the best known. And for better or worse, she's also the best at getting attention. But her visibility has also invited criticism from some Bravo fans who think her campaign is driven by resentment rather than altruism, and from activists and organizers who see her, a wealthy white woman, as an ineffective emissary for a worthwhile cause. Since leaving RHONY for the second time in 2019, Frankel has continued to develop projects for Bravo, including a series about women in suburban Connecticut that is no longer moving forward. In a phone call ahead of BravoCon, a fan gathering over the weekend in Las Vegas, she noted that she is acutely aware of the perception that she's now biting the hand that fed her and that she stayed silent while the arrangement worked in her favor. Franco said she was sometimes troubled by and even voiced concerns about the situation she faced during her time on RHONY, like the famous boat ride from hell, that she and her co-stars endured on a chaotic trip to Car Car Cartagena, Colombia. But she didn't understand how widespread the problems were within the reality TV industry or if that change was possible until recently. 
I just didn't realize it because I was in it, she said. Frankel, who founded a disaster relief initiative that has provided aid to people in Ukraine, expresses ambivalence about her newfound role as a reality TV Aaron Brockovich. She said she has no desire to become a union leader, a la SAG actress Fran Drescher. That's why I don't run for office, Frankel says. I don't want to be a part of any bureaucracy. That's not my personality. Instead, she adds, her focus right now is on spending, spreading a message about systemic change and acting as a conduit for people who believe they were wronged by reality TV. My goal is to effect change. It's already happened, she said, citing ongoing conversation with SAG-AFTRA about reality TV labor conditions and NBC Universal's recent push to strengthen workplace guidelines on its unscripted shows. A Vanity Fair expose that Franco participated in cast producers of The Real Housewives in unfavorable light. A representative from Bravo declined to comment on Franco's claims about Cohen or the network. Over the course of a freewheeling conversation last week, Frankel shared her candid thoughts on the state of reality TV, especially The Real Housewives, her controversial role as an industry whistleblower, and Cohen's place in the Bravo universe. The conversation has been condensed and edited for clarity. Question. I think you'd be the first to say that you've benefited from being on reality TV and working with Bravo in the past. So what made you start to question it? Answer. When I started on reality TV, I just wanted to be successful. I wanted to be recognized. Many of the women that come on The the Real Housewives have either been cheated on or gone through a bad divorce or their marriage is crumbling and this feels like it's going to save them. They take this opportunity and they're excited. People care about what they're saying and doing. It's a gift. I was grateful to what I call the realm. While I did play a part in negative speech toward other women on television and other things that we all do to win at the game, I did think about it. I did think about when something was wrong. When Kenny, Kelly Ben Simmons left Scary Island, a notorious cast trip to the Virgin Islands in which Ben Simmons behaved erratically, I remember thinking she's never coming back. They can't have her back on the show after what we all witnessed. Sure enough, She was back days later. Every time a line was crossed, I always knew something was wrong, just like women on casting couches before hashtag me too. I knew it was wrong. Just like everybody knows what's wrong, but they have no power because you're in the machine. I left the machine because it was toxic and gross, but I was still gross because, yes, I was still talking to somebody about doing a show at Bravo because I could operate and manipulate the machine because I had so much power. That may not be popular and no one wants to hear that. And no and that no that may not be popular and no one wants to hear that. And people want to rewrite history and say in the comments, when you are no longer profiting off of Bravo, you want to take the whole thing down. I left multiple times and walked away from shows because I have money and I don't mind rocking the boat. I didn't plan to do any of this. I only mentioned it because of the actors' strike. It was like, wait, what the hell? They have a strike? Why would reality stars not want a union? I'm still on billboards in Australia and deals are still being made every day from something I signed when I didn't know if there would ever be a streamer. It was F Little House of the Prairie. We're still exploited with memes and gifts and YouTube and all the videos. So why wouldn't we have a union? Question. Has this changed your view of any fellow reality TV 
personally, personalities? Answer. I started seeing people differently. I started seeing Nene Leakes as a black woman. I ended up reconnecting with Jill Zarin, who had her husband's funeral become part of a storyline on an episode of R-H-O-N-Y. I saw people who have made mistakes but also been exploited, like former New Jersey housewife Danielle Staub, who was called a prostitution whore by co-star Teresita Giodici in a scene that went viral. Former Beverly Hills star Brandy Glanville is a woman who came in having been cheated on by Eddie Cibrian, her ex-husband at the point. She was vulnerable. Those are, those are the punching bags. The Daniels, the Brandys, they are the ones getting beaten up. They want the money. They need the fame. So they'll do anything. Those are the easiest ones to control. Andy Cohen is provoking women to trash each other on Watch What Happens Live. He gets richer while these women kill each other. Question. How would you describe Andy Cohen's role in all of this? Answer. It's, a fascinating, it's fascinating that no one at Bravo has ever reached out to say, what can we do? What do we want? What do we want? We want to make a change. They are just running scared, and they're trying to plug up holes in a boat that's taking on water, not unlike the boat we were on in Colombia. This is basically the entire culture at this place, across all shows. Individual women have individual speci uh, special relationships with Cohen. And himself said in a New York Magazine story, he's the father and the boss of these individual women. He makes everybody feel really special, and he doesn't cross those relationships over. He doesn't hang out with me and Nene together. Everything is very comp compartmentalized, and that's very cult-like to me. Question. How does the reality reckoning fit into everything else you have going on right now? How much time are you spending on it? Answer. I would say maybe 25% of my work life is being currently spent on this, and sometimes I wonder, why are you doing this? But I can't abandon these people now. They want justice. They don't want to see this institution thrive at BravoCon. Question. What do you see as the most pressing issue that need to be addressed by these in the by the industry? Residuals obviously are a big one. What else? Answer. There needs to be health insurance. There needs to be proper human resources, and the investigations need to be independent, not internal. Children need to be compensated. If you look at the former New Jersey star Dina Manzo's daughter's social media, she's talked about how it kind of ruined her life, and as an adult, She's still living with what she did on television when she was a kid. There need to be workplace guidelines for people the same way that everybody had to do it for COVID. The whole thing is the upside down. You shouldn't be excited when someone's stealing or going to jail or an addict starts to drink again. There has to be a line. It has to be exploration, not exploitation of people's lives. The scene with Kelly and me, this is me, this is you, it was one of the most iconic scenes in Housewives history. There was nothing you would have to you would have to call HR about, and it was wildly entertaining. What's going on now is nothing short of disgusting. The ones who need the gig get shooed up and spit out because they can't walk away. The ones who can walk away usually don't get exploited the same way. Question: A lot of people are sympathetic to the idea of a union and reform of reality TV but are skeptical about your role in all of this. What do you say to that? Answer. I didn't ask for this. You can be skeptical, but it wouldn't be but it wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. 
Sorry, I invented the wheel, but it's rolling your car. I apologize. That's what your car is driving on. Question. Where do you where do things stand in terms of a possible union and your conversations with SAG-AFTRA? Answer. They actively call us all the time to say, what can we do? How can we help? I'm shocked. They want these people to sit down with them. The big guns, the Hulus and the Netflixes and the Amazons. It's like the five families, effectively. But I'm not going to be running a union. I've been giving people uh, the help they, they need. So many people want to talk because their story has just been sound bites for the press. They just want someone to once and for all hear their story. Question. Do you think you've played a part in some of the worst parts of the genre? Answer. From a workplace perspective, perspective, I'm not entirely sure. On my own show, Big Shot with Bethany, there were people in my house and it was freezing and we were outside at 2 o'clock in the morning. I never really thought about how the sausage gets made. I would go on uh, Watch What Happens Live knowing, okay, I'm going to whore myself out because I'm going to promote my product and answer these questions. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to be accused. I'm going to be abused by the media in, in clickbait. But the thing is, Andy never got dirty. We all got filthy in the name of promoting what we're doing and because we're excited to be asked and excited to sit in the first seat. Question, what role do the fans play in this? Are they part of the problem? Answer, I would say 75% are like, I keep feeling more disgusted watching this. The ratings reflect that. Maybe 15 to 25% don't want you to take their junk food away. They may also feel miserable about their own lives and seeing other train wrecks makes them feel better. But if you took cigarette smoking off television because it wasn't good for people and you didn't want to glamorize it, you should take it off people emotionally abusing other people because it glamorizes that too. Question. People have compared Bravo and the Real Housewives to the NFL or professional wrestling, a popular pastime that can be brutal on the players. Do you think it's possible to keep the shows entertaining but make them more humane? Answer. I do. Because of, this, because of the scene with Kelly I told you about. I think the line has been crossed because now it's low-hanging fruit. It's bad producing. Why not just have somebody do something outlandish that we tell them to do because it's less work? It's like any other business. You can make a garment in a cheap manner. You can make good television in a creative manner. Or you can just do a botched job. Viewers have had an unprecedented pandemic wars more natural disasters worldwide than they can even keep up with. There's an appetite now for a different type of entertainment. This is a real reality reckoning. It's absolutely happening. I'm already affecting change. To the people who don't think I should be leaning this charge, too bad, apply for the job. That was Bravo Made Her a Star, But Now, by Meredith Blake, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 6, 2023. Right, and now we got to go on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 12, 2023. The Ultimate Authority. Robert Brustein's expertise took his ideas far beyond the usual scope of a theater critic and academic by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Shortly after being banished, I disguised Kent Flatter's King Lear by telling him that he has that quality that leads other men to follow. What's that, Lear demands? Authority, Kent replies, 
sealing his return to royal service. Authority is a quality that critics not long ago were proud to possess, authority rooted in knowledge, taste, and judgment. But authority is now looked at skeptically. Expertise is second-guessed by those whose main qualification is social media access. Lear, who achieves true regal stature after divesting himself of all its superficial trappings, comes to see the great image of authority as no more than a dog's obeyed an office. And that is how many see critics today, snarling gatekeepers in need of a good kick. Robert Brewstein, who died last month at the age of 96, was every inch a kingly critic. On the pages of the New Republic, he issued verdicts and pronouncements on the state of theater for more than 50 years. The author of a seminal book on modern drama, The Theater of Revolt, along with collections of criticism and argumentative essays, he wielded an authority that went beyond the relatively limited scope of his media reach. One didn't read Brewstein to determine which Broadway shows to buy tickets to. One read Brewstein to understand a play or musical in its larger historical context and to be reminded of the artistic values that guided his judgments. A professor who refused to be an ivory tower egghead, Brewstein didn't simply respond to the art of his day, but helped shape it. As the founder of both the Yale Repertory Theater and the American Repertory Theater at Harvard University, he ushered new work into the repertoire and gave modernizing life to the classics. Adopting an artist-centered mandate that was in opposition to the box office imperative of the commercial theater, he was able to put institutional money where his mouth was. He supported directors, playwrights, and actors who challenged the dramatic canon by deeply engaging with it. Experimentation wasn't ancillary, but integral to his idea of a flourishing theater. Masterpieces weren't meant to be resurrected as museum pieces, but boldly re-examined and understood afresh. In 1967, at Yale, he brought in Jonathan Miller to direct Robert Lowell's radical reworking of Achilles' Prometheus Bound. In 1984, at ART, he let Joanne Achilletis have her way with Samuel Beckett's Endgame and defended her against the playwright's public repudiation. Central to Brewstein's legacy is the way he transformed theater education in America. Appointed to turn the Yale School of Drama into something more than an, academ than an academy for well-born thespians, he modernized the training of theater artists by assembling a faculty of leading artists and uncompromising intellectuals. When his welcome at Yale wore out, he duplicated the feat at Harvard. His pedagogy and artistic leadership influenced generations, including actors Meryl Streep, Christopher Walken, and Sherry Jones, playwright Christopher Durang, theater critics Michael Feingold and Helen Shaw, and Broadway producer Rocco Landisman. He supported the mammoth theatrical undertakings of Robert Wilson, produced the American premiere of David Mamet's The Cryptogram, and was an early champion of the work of Suzanne Laurie Parks. For Brewstein, artistic rigor wasn't incompatible with analytical rigor. This idea may not seem all that radical, but anti-intellectualism runs deeper in the American theater. He fought tirelessly for two ideas that have fallen out of favor, a conservatory affiliated with the world-class professional theater and a repertory company that would provide actors a stable home for artistic growth.
For his contributions to the American theater, he was awarded a 2010 National Media, Award, Award, Media of Arts. Our paths crossed only sporadically in New York and at the California Institute of Arts, where I teach, and Brewstein, who was also a veteran director and practicing playwright, was a visiting artist. I was a devoted reader of his criticism, but I didn't always appreciate his screeds about the misuses of multiculturalism or his insistence that artists had more important things to do than combating social evils. His antipathy to the politicization of culture didn't fully account for the privilege that allowed him to separate these two realms. Brewstein's universalism grew ornery, ornery and more claustrophobic with age. He became dogmatic in his resistance to ideology, never quite acknowledging the ideological principles that informed his worldview. He insisted that the theater adopt a post-racial posture at a time when society was still blatantly racist. His intellectual feud with playwright <clears throat> August Wilson, which led to a highly publicized debate at New York's Town Hall in 1997, moderated by Anna Devere Smith, threw these matters into disquieting relief. Brewstein had complained in print that Wilson's fixation on the sins of the white oppressor and his mistreatment of black victims prevented Wilson from creating a character who reaches any understanding of the self as a consequence of self-motivated actions. On the debate stage, Brewstein suggested that Wilson was talking about himself as if he were a 300-year-old man standing on the ground of the slave quarters. This may have been a low point, but not even the more edifying moments of the discussion shed much light on the essential conflict between Brewstein's commitment to integration and Wilson's appeal for separatism. Race is not immaterial to the loss of prestige that critics have faced. The field long dominated by white men has been forced to reckon with its homogeneity, Brewstein's conviction that political correctness was out to demolish our traditional standards and values so that the very idea of quality is assumed to be racist fueled a defensiveness that could come cr across as cranky and imperious. The downside of Brewstein's authority was its authoritarianism. Self-irony was not his strong suit. His utopian vision of theater was founded and marred by tyrannical tendencies. Purity of pursuit is no guarantee of purity of execution. Not even so stalwart a defender of the non-profit theater model uh, could always resist the temptations of the commercial world. There's a reason most critics aren't also producers. Brewstein adeptly handled the ethical quagmire, but that appearance of conflict could not always be avoided. Theater critic Richard Gilman, a colleague and formidable peer of Brewstein's, called him out on his hyperbolic praise of Marsha Norman's Night Mother, suggesting that the American Repertory Theater's involvement with the play may have had something to do with Brewstein likening the work to Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night. I come not to condemn Brewstein, but to praise him. The product of a different cultural climate, his model cannot and probably should not be replicated. But what's remarkable about his critical example, the depth and breadth of his erudition, the intellectual dexterity, the moral force of his aesthetic devotion, the burning clarity of his expression, should not be dismissed by an age that cannot match his rigor. 
Brustein's ability to see the big picture while attending to fine details places him in a category of scholar-critic that is virtually extinct in our time. Brustein was part of an intellectual tradition that included Eric Bentley, Lionel Trilling, and Susan Sontag, writers and thinkers who wrote with an eye to the grand synthesis. To understand the European and American foundation of modern drama, it is necessary to read Brustein along with Bentley and Gilman. Brustein's scholarship will outlast his polemics. His influence on artists and critics, of course, lives on, but his most enduring legacy lies in his writing. Personally, I don't read Brustein for his opinions. I read him for the pattern of mind revealed in his prose. I read him to understand how we arrived at this precarious place in the history of the American theater. I read him to re refresh and refine my ideals. And I read him for the co uh, collision of ideas that assures me that progress is still possible despite the irreparable losses. That was The Ultimate Authority by Charles McNulty, theater critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 12, 2023. Let's conclude with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 13, 2023. On excellent terms, James L. Brooks looks back at his feature debut and hints at a new film by Mark Olson. By the early 1980s, James L. Brooks had already had an enviably successful career in television, a decade of Emmy-winning work that included the creation of The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. But was it... But what... But was his most influential piece of entertainment still ahead of him? Setting the template for the sort of tender, funny, sad movie that would become a Hollywood staple, 1983's Terms of Endearment is rooted in the experience of a Houston widow, Aurora Greenway, Shirley MacLaine, and her relationship with her daughter, Emma, Deborah Winger. Jack Nicholson plays a former astronaut who lives next door to Aurora, and the cast also includes Jeff Daniels, Danny DeVito, and John Lithgow. Only four years after its release, the movie was referred to by Times reviewer Kevin Thomas as one of the key American films of the 1980s. An adaptation of the 1975 novel by Larry McMurdy, Terms of Endearment, will go on to win five Academy Awards, including three for Brooks for directing, screenplay, and best picture, as well as awards for McLean and Nicholson. Wing winner Winger and Lithgow also were nominated. The film is is being re-released on Blu-ray on Tuesday in a new 4, uh, 4K transfer from the original camera negative approved by Brooks. The set also includes a commentary track from the 2001 DVD release of the film featuring Brooks, co-producer Penny Finkelman, Cox, and production designer Polly Platt. After terms, Brooks continued to largely go from success to success, directing broadcast news and As Good As It Gets, among others, while helping to launch the feature debuts of Wes Anderson and Cameron Crowe. He's also a producer on Kelly Fremont Craig's recent adaptation of Judy Bloom's Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Brooks also, of course, was involved in creating the long-running animated series The Simpsons. He recently sat for a brief interview with The Times to reflect on terms of endearment, contemporary Hollywood, and how at age 83, he isn't done yet. Question. When you made Terms of Endearment, you had a lot of experience in television, but this was your first time directing a feature, and it doesn't feel like anybody's idea of a first film. Did you approach the film with a lot of confidence going in? Answer. No. 
I approached it with complete innocence, which is so what, which is so great and helps so much. And you only get it once. I, and I think that's what helped me, my being naive. You don't know what you're not supposed to do. There's nothing you're doing by root. Every day you come to work and has a newness and energy to it. And learning on the job, it's good. In a bad situation, I guess it can be overwhelming, but it really helps. It's not like you've done it before. Question. Is it striking to you that a movie like Terms is now rare and difficult to get made in Hollywood? Answer. I think everything's difficult to get made theatrically. That's becoming tough to do. But it was quite a cast to bring it to the game. Dipper Ringer was the star of the moment. Jack Nicholson, we wouldn't have had a movie without Jack Nicholson. I wouldn't have known who else to go without Jack Nicholson. And I was fortunate that Deborah knew him personally and was able to get the script to him because I don't think I could have gotten the script to him. And before I got him, I tried to think of who and I couldn't. And that was scary. Question. What was it about McMurtry's, McMurtry's novel that appealed to you? Answer. It was the second time in my life that I had cried when I read a book. And I thought there was a sort of biological truth that I had that I had to live by, and I did and, and just follow that. Question. What do you mean by biological truth? Answer. I had cried once at a tragedy in life. I it wasn't a crier. I wasn't a crier all the time. I've since improved on that score. And when I read the book, I was in tears, and that removed all questions from me. Question. It's really become part of the lore around the movie that Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger didn't get along. For you, as a first-time director, how did you navigate that? Answer. There was a moment, I don't think she'd mind my telling the story, there was a moment when things were bad in a certain way and Deborah wouldn't come out of her hotel room. I hope she wouldn't mind this. I don't think so because we came out of the picture really appreciating each other. And she won't go out of her hotel room. And we are up against a holiday where if you didn't finish shooting, people come to grab you and the world falls off. And I went up to the hotel room and I knocked on her door. And she said, Jim, I just can't. I just can't see you right now. And I said, I have to go to the bathroom. And she said, nice try. And I walked away in failure. But I think that sort of broke the ice because everything suddenly wasn't so serious. And out she came. Question. This film being a very fruitful collaboration you had with Nicholson. Here, he's in four of your, of your movies and won two Oscars. What did working with him come to mean to you? Answer. The short answer is everything. He used to come up behind me and it was my first time directing. And he'd say, you want to know the worst direction you gave today? And he'd tell me. That, uh, and then he'd come up. You want to know the best direction you gave today? And it was just so great. And what he brought with him, especially with all the stuff you hear about the cast and everything, is joy for the work and a light touch. And just the karma that of that was great. Question. Can I ask when you last spoke to him? As of right now, his final role will be in one of your films, 2010's How Do, How Do You Know? Answer. I don't know whether that's true. We're in touch. We're periodically in touch. I just think he's one of the great humans. Question. On the commentary track, one of the people you're in conversation with is Polly Platt, the production designer. The two of you worked very closely over a number of years, and yet her role was often difficult to define from movie to movie. Why did you and Polly eventually stop working together? Answer. There was no breakup or anything. I mean, we were close forever. 
And what she had was, in a really down-home retrograde way, she loved the ass off movies. She loved movies, and she had a deep history with it. And she was a purist. It was great to be around. It was funny with dailies because she didn't like studio executives. So when the studio came in to see me, Polly would sit there making faces at them. The word for her is irrepressible. And I was just thinking about it the other day because she told a story where John Ford gave her his hat. And then I saw the other day a picture of him. And indeed, he was wearing the hat that I saw that, she, that he gave Polly. She loved movies in a great way that had a contagion to it. And that had a sense of service to it. And she was unique and she misbehaved. She was exciting and she was extraordinary, an extraordinary mentor to women. She didn't break them in two. She made them wonder for the rest of their lives, which tended to be what happened. Question. One of the projects you worked on with her was I'll Do Anything. Do you foresee a day when the Prince re estate relents and you can release the musical version of his songs on it? Because I would buy that disc in a second. Answer. You know something? I was obsessed with trying to do it because the movie was a tremendous failure. And one of the things I've thought of is that nobody has just gone and done a documentary of this is what happened to me and let's look at it. And nobody's done it yet. That door is still open. Still nobody's done that. But I couldn't get the right th the rights to his songs and that's what stopped me. Question. Are you still pursuing that? Do you think anything will come of it? Answer. No, it was a long time ago. Question. Do you think you'll direct again? Answer. I'm going to early next year. Question. You have a new film you're going to be directing. That's so exciting. Answer, I think I will because people are gathering now. I might as well. Question, you've often shepherded young filmmakers along. How does that help you in your own process? Answer, it's always going to keep serving a film in one way or another, and it's been great. I took a very long time writing the script I'm about to do. Like, I won't say how long, so I was always doing it. It started in a certain way, and then it took a path. But that's the picture I'm going to make. Question. Is Hollywood a lot different now from when you were making terms? Is it difficult in the same way? Answer. The glut of streaming is really something. And to make a specific movie that you care about, that comes out of you, that represents you, that, ma that and make that as a theatrical movie is even harder now. When there's so much data before you start and they understand it, there's actually numbers that tell you whether you'll make money and they tend to be right. Question, are you hoping to have this new film be a theatrical project? Answer, oh, it will be. It is. Question, <clears throat> you've often said that people remember terms as a drama, but at the time it really played more as a comedy. What do you think it is? Answer, the whole thing was, made, was to make it as a comedy. The whole thing was to clock laughs. You had to in order to do it right. And of course, once audience, the audience leaves and it has its alter life, it's a drama because people are watching it alone. But I swear to you, in the theaters, it was a comedy. Question. You had this personal goal of getting people to somehow laugh at the word cancer. Answer. I got obsessed with it because the word was such an awful word at the time. It was such an, a controversial conversation-killing word at the time. And I thought making it as a comedy, that had to be a goal. How, how to get a laugh on the word cancer. And we sort of got there. Question. I think of that tone as your trademark. It's a little bit sad, a little bit funny. Answer, well, hopefully a lot sad and a lot funny. Question, 
What is it that you like about working in that register? Answer. Life. I mean, that's what real life is, isn't it? Somewhere in there. That was On Excellent Terms by Mark Olson from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, November 13, 2023. Well, folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, we find it all right here. Whether it's in arts, whether it's in sports, whether it's even in elected office, or even in our own community, you will find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun, saying to you, Shalom and Peace.